Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we conclude our series today, The Boundless Compassion of God, with a message entitled, The Lord's Compassion. So join me in turning to our Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There's a wonderful passage about creation found in Nehemiah 9, verse 6. It says, You are Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. That is, all the host of heaven reflects back in its beauty, in its design, and the way in which it's sustained, all of that reflects back onto God the greatness and the splendor of the God who has made it all. Well, we've been studying the book of Jonah, and today we come to the last part of this amazing book. And even though I've mentioned God's governance of all nature before, it does come into focus here. In chapter 1, we saw that God controlled the wind so that, you know, it became a mighty tempest, and God controlled the water even to the point when the ship was about to break up. It was God who appointed the fish to swallow Jonah, and it was God who appointed the time when the fish would vomit him out. And today, as we finish up the book, we'll see God again appointing nature to act according to his design. But of course, that's not the main point of Jonah. The book ends in a climax with a very compassionate God and a very angry Jonah. You know, this book of Jonah is intended to make all of us examine our attitude about God's compassion towards people that we might not like. Well, let's begin with Jonah 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. You know, it's hard to know the exact chronology that ensued. Is verse 5 a flashback? Now, you remember that in the earlier part of the chapter, Jonah has told God that he's angry enough to die. See, he'd come to realize that the mercy of God that was extended to Israel when it sinned against God in the desert by making a calf idol, that when God extended grace to Israel in spite of their sins, this very grace would also be extended to any Gentile who also repented of his or her sins. In essence, what we have in Jonah is a forerunner to the gospel. It echoes what the apostle Peter would later learn as a Roman centurion named Cornelius, along with those Gentiles assembled in his house that were saved that day when when the Holy Spirit fell on them. Just as it happened among the Jews, God made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Christ died for the Jew as well as for the Greek and the Roman and the Koreans and the Chinese and the British and the Germans and the French and the Filipinos and the Iranians. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God makes no distinctions. That, of course, does not mean that God didn't have a special place or a special role that Israel would play in God's program of bringing his salvation to the world. But but in the end of the day, God would make no distinction between people. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is, as Paul would tell us in Ephesians, building one new man out of the two. See, God has so designed it that Japanese and Korean Christians would sit at the table of brotherhood, as would Russian and Ukrainian believers, as would American and Iranian believers, as would Jews and German believers, as would white and black South African believers. See, the truth is, says Ephesians, that the dividing wall of hostility 
has been torn down in Christ, and now God has created one new man out of the two, thus creating peace. If you're a dyed-in-the-wool nationalist, this might be hard to hear, but I'm going to say this as plainly as the Scripture does. The global body of believers in Jesus are our family. Indeed, our greatest loyalty, or may I say it this way, our greatest patriotism is to the global family of the followers of Jesus Christ, our Lord. No nation in which we live does not, may I say this as loudly and as boldly as I know how, the nations of this world do not claim our ultimate allegiance. Jesus does. And the brothers and sisters who are of his family are now that one holy nation. Again, if this sits badly with you, you might want to listen closely to the last section of the book of Jonah. Again, we can't be sure of the chronology. I mean, did Jonah express his anger with God while still out in the desert? See, is verse 5 a flashback as to how Jonah got to the desert where he could express his anger with God? You know, perhaps we can't be sure about that. But, but verse 4, the last section we studied ended with God asking Jonah to answer whether it was well for him to be angry. See, at any rate, Jonah is out in the desert to the east of the city. There's a rise in the geography, so from there, he could overlook the city. And since he already knows that God will have mercy on the city, one wonders, what is he waiting for? I mean, some have suggested that Jonah is not at all convinced that the show of repentance in Nineveh is genuine. Surely God's going to discover that this is hypocrisy, and in that case, the city will still be destroyed. Perhaps fire would still fall and consume them. And, and so in a vain hope that something nasty might yet happen to the Ninevites, what does Jonah do? Well, he builds a booth, says our text, as a, as a shade from the very hot desert sun. And that word booth, well, it's the same word that we find for the structure that the Israelites were to make when they celebrated the annual Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And this was a remembrance of the years that their forefathers had been in the wilderness. And so, you know, during this festival, everyone lived outside and made huts or booths in which they were to live and in which they were to tell their children about the wilderness wanderings. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that Jonah, like the rest of Israel, was quite familiar with how to make one of those booths. And so he made one for himself then, probably provided him with a little bit of shade, not much, and it was still oppressively hot and nasty as Jonah, who's already in a very bad mood, sits outside in the hut and he waits for what, by all indications, was not going to happen anyway. And we have to imagine that he's in this very foul mood. And here we see something of God's mercy to his very angry prophet. How God orders nature. Verse 6 says, Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of that plant. I love that term, appointed. You know, you go back to chapter 1, verse 17, and we saw that word there for the first time. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Yep. In his rebellion, Jonah had found himself drowning, and the Lord appointed that fish to not only save him from drowning, but also to bring him back to his senses. God is appointing nature to act in a way that brings kindness to this prophet. But here, rather than saying it was the Lord who appointed it, well, look, chapter 4, verse 6 says that it was the Lord God who appointed the plant. Well, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh Elohim. 
Uh, But until now, when the Gentiles speak of the divine, the word Elohim or God is used in the Gentile settings. He's the great creator who rules all things. You know, in some ways, that's no different than when people in our culture speak about God. So they often acknowledge God but have no relationship with God. They don't know his ways. But when the word Yahweh or Lord is used, well, it refers to the name of God, the God who enters into covenant with his people, the God who reveals himself to his people, who shows his character, his love, his mercy to those whom he has made and those whom he has chosen. Yahweh is personal. He's the God of revelation. Elohim is the God of creation and the power that's evident to all. But here as God appoints the plant, for the first time in the book, the author uses the title Lord God, combines them both. And we might ask, well, since it's unique here, what are we to learn from that? See, I have a memory that goes back to my seminary days, and I was studying the Hebrew language one summer, and our professor took us to a large Hasidic Jewish bookstore. He pulled a book from the shelf, and he pointed to each one of us at random and asked us to translate. Well, a very angry man approached us and asked us what we were doing, and my prof said that we were Christian students learning the Hebrew language, and we come here to read Hebrew books. Well, what happened next was stunning. The man took the book from my prof's hand and put it back on the shelf and picked out another book and said, well, this one's for Gentiles, and it was in English. Look, there are haters among every people group on earth, and I'm certainly not suggesting that that all the Hasidim are like that, but it was a shocking display of utter rejection. And that was the problem with Jonah. When he speaks to the Ninevites, he must have only used the term God. For all we read about is that the Ninevites believed God. But in fact, when God appoints a plant to provide additional shade so that Jonah's misery in the desert is mitigated, well, we see that it was the Lord God. He's both creator and the God of the covenant. Jonah has to know that. Jonah's supposed to reflect on that. There's not one truth of God for the Gentiles and then another for the chosen people. The knowledge of the Lord God is to be spread everywhere, and Jonah is to observe that the same God who appointed the whale and the plant has also appointed this hour of repentance for the Ninevites. But Jonah notices none of these subtleties, but he's very happy that his discomfort is taken away, that in the very hot desert sun, there is a plant to give more shade. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to cover Canada with the gospel and share God's message across all demographic groups. But fulfilling the mandate of this Bible teaching ministry requires a team effort. The ministry fiscal year end is upon us and will conclude on June 30th. This year, we have a faith goal to raise $325,000 by month's end to bring the ministry budget year to a successful close. We're praying for our listeners and partners across the country to join us in reaching this goal. For your consideration this month, ministry friends have come together pledging to match your donation dollar for dollar up to $100,000. So every dollar given will be matched. Your grace will be met with grace. To give today and maximize the impact of your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. We were left with the scene of Jonah waiting in the hot desert sun, hoping against hope that the fortunes of the Ninevites might change. 
that God might even now, at this very late hour, destroy the city utterly. Jonah's angry and in a generally bad mood, but in grace, God has appointed a plant to grow so that it might provide additional shade to his little standalone booth in this fiercely hot desert sun. So we go to verses 7 and 8. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. I hope you're paying attention here because now we see the word appointed, the word we noticed twice before. Now it's repeated another two times in this passage. First, notice that God appointed a worm. I wonder if you ever think about that. I mean, not only does God control the great movements of nature, stars, the planets, the seasons on this planet, but he also controls the activity of this individual worm. Many assume that it must refer to a a black caterpillar, quite plentiful in that region. But this worm, doing what worms do, is not just appointed to attack the plant. He's appointed to attack Jonah's shade. And then God also appoints a scorching east wind. You know, those of us who live in northern climates have a hard time getting a picture of that. You know, for a number of years, Kathy and I lived in Southern California, where I well remember the Santa Ana winds. You know, until then, I had no idea what a hot desert wind actually felt like. You know, all of greater Los Angeles not only then feels like a blast from a furnace, but the air is filled with sand particles that come out of the desert. And if you're out in it, you're not only terribly hot, your teeth are gritty, your mouth is filled with sand. It feels terrible. And so for just a moment, God appoints relief. And then in the next moment, he not only removes that same relief, he actually makes the conditions worse than they were before. So you might remember Job. You know, he had lost his wealth and his children and finally his own health. And then his wife counseled him and she said, curse God and die. She was bitter, and in her bitterness, she wants Job to make God his enemy and then just to perish. Listen to Job's response, Job 2.10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And that point, that God appoints the good times as well as the times of suffering, is something that you know, a great many Christians struggle with. How can God appoint times of suffering? You know, if God's good, how how can there be poverty and death and wasting illnesses? You know, it's not our purview to answer those questions here. I leave that for another time. But here in Jonah, it was God who appointed storm and the ocean. He appointed the plant. He appointed the worm to destroy the plant. He appointed this appalling and punishing hot desert wind to blow so that, well, I have to imagine sand is sweeping through Jonah's hut. His his mouth is full of sand. He's become as uncomfortable as he can possibly be. God did it because God knew that only in these conditions would he be able to speak to this prophet who so desperately needed to learn a lesson. And so we come to Jonah 4 verse 9. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. It's important not to quickly pass this question by. The plant is for Jonah so much more than a plant. It's relief from his misery. You know, and for that reason, we have to imagine that he had come to very strong feelings towards the plant. He was very thankful for it. Hot desert climate, the plant is a, is a symbol for him of God's mercy. And then the mercy, like the plant, seems to have died. 
And God then asks him, do you have the right or do you do well to be angry about the plant? And you'll notice the question is almost identical as the question that was asked earlier on in this same chapter. You know, in verse 4, Jonah was asked, do you do well to be angry? And in that case, it was about his anger that Nineveh was not destroyed. In verse 4, Jonah doesn't answer, but now here we are in verse 9. He's ready for an answer. Yeah, he says, I do well to be angry. I am righteous to be angry. I'm in a proper footing here when I'm filled with rage over this plant. There are a great many Bible teachers who believe that this question, do you do well to be angry, is the central issue of the entire book of Jonah. See, when Jonah says, I have a right to be angry, he is in fact saying, I have a right to believe that God should favor me with mercy and that he should not favor Nineveh with mercy. I am right to demand it for myself, but I don't need to demand it for others. I don't think Jonah saw that connection. I mean, please remember he's being rash because he is, well, no doubt about it, he's suffering from heat exhaustion. When we're in physical distress, we tend not to answer rationally, nor are we likely to connect the dots. So you might say perhaps, you know, we're being a little bit too harsh with Jonah, but do you think that the destruction he wants on Nineveh would mean a great deal more suffering than what he's presently experiencing. See, we must all be aware that it's human nature to care a great deal more about our own sufferings than we do about the sufferings of others. You know, in part, that's because we are all such horrible narcissists. We do well to remember that we feel far more pain when someone insults us than we do when we hear of the death of children in a war between people that don't affect us. C.S. Lewis, when finding that his wife was dying of cancer, noted that he had been blind to much of the sufferings of this world, for if he had not been so blind to it, he might not have been so shocked when suffering arrived at his door. And of course, it's so with all of us. But for three days, Jonah had been going through the city and denouncing it for her sins, and in the same breath, he was encountering the real men and women in that city. See, these were no longer the people on the other side of the world. They were right now the people in his line of of sight. And given that, the question is very well asked. Are you right to be angry with the death of this plant? Are you justified in such anger? And then, whereas he didn't answer the question of whether he was justified with his anger in regards to the Ninevites, he does answer in regard to the plant. Yeah, I have a right to such anger. Indeed, I am so angry, I would rather die than to live with a God who would destroy this plant. You know, Jonah has a death wish, that's for sure. He wanted to die in chapter 1 when he asked the sailors to throw him overboard. He wanted to die in chapter 4, verse 2, when he saw the promise made through Moses would also be extended to the Gentiles. And now he wants to die again when he discovers that God destroyed his plant. I'm angry enough, he said, that life has simply lost its meaning. Let me die. And then we come to the climax of the book, very last words in verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Not knowing their right hand from the left is an idiom or a figure of speech. You know, among the Hebrews, it meant that they were morally and spiritually unaware. They didn't know the one true God. They they didn't understand why God had created them. They didn't know what life was for. 
And until Jonah arrived, they didn't even know the nature of their own sins and the amount of guilt they had acquired before God. They, they were spiritually in the dark. Did you know that most of the world is exactly like that? How can you pity a plant and crave for your own comfort and not be roused by the desperate plight of those who are lost? That's the theme of Jonah. Are you concerned with your own comfort much more than you are concerned with the fact that the greater portion of the world is heading right now for a Christless eternity? Do you get angry with God when something you love is taken away in this world and you're still not deeply grieved at the spiritual darkness that envelops most of the world today? Do you see yourself in Jonah? Are you as angry as he is and so lacking in compassion as he is that you would even denounce God? How much personal comfort would you personally be willing to give up so that the world might hear the saving news of Jesus? What if it affects you financially? What if it affects your time? What if it affects your health? Would you still say, nonetheless, may the world hear, for I have learned of the compassion of my God, and I am willing to forego my own comfort? See, the book of Jonah ends without resolving this question. Is Jonah right to be angry? That's because it's supposed to be our question. And that's because we're supposed to answer it for ourselves. The book of Jonah leaves it hanging because it waits for us to step in and say, Lord, I love your compassion. May we say it. Thanks so much, John, for a wonderful series. Let me ask you this concluding question. What do we learn from the book of Jonah? What does it say about our responsibility to go into the world? Yeah, you know, I've often said that the book of Jonah is proof positive that the Bible's a supernatural book because if it was just, that is the Old Testament, if the Old Testament was just a Jewish book, I don't think Jonah would have made it into the Bible. It seems so condemning of the Jewish people. Uh, But God, in his sovereignty, helps us to see that we're very much like the Jewish people. We, We don't like grace to people unlike us. And yet God calls us to that very mission. The book of Jonah should call all of us to redouble our efforts in world evangelization to bring the gospel to every corner of the globe. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada is wrapping up another fiscal year. And what a year it's been. God's blessing on this ministry has been so evident and and we're humbled to carry out the mission entrusted to Back to the Bible Canada. You can continue to depend upon our daily Bible teaching broadcast with Dr. John and his weekly video series. New print resources have been created to encourage believers in their spiritual walk and more are planned for this upcoming ministry year. But none of these incredible advancements would be possible without the faithful support of our listeners. Your generosity sustains this ministry, and together the gospel is being propelled into every corner of this country and beyond. To offer a gift to support this month's fiscal year-end match campaign, 
Would you visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.